Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 30 years we have invited voices of conscience to explore the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm the moderator of the forum. Follow the forum, if you'd like, on Twitter or like us on Facebook, westminsterforum.org. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times and a weekly commentator on PBS's NewsHour. He was born in Toronto, grew up in New York City, and graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in history. He's been a contributing editor at Newsweek and The Atlantic Magazine and a senior editor at The Weekly Standard. Mr. Brooks is the author of two books, which he has described as comic sociology, the first being Bobos in Paradise, The New Upper Class and How They Got There, and On Paradise Drive, How We Live Now and Always Have in the Future Tense. His newest book from Random House, and the reason he's here tonight, is The Social Animal, The Hidden Sources of Love, Character, and Achievement. In 2008, Mr. Brooks visited us here at the Town Hall Forum one week after President Obama's historic election. At that time, he drew the largest crowd ever to Westminster, and I think we've at least matched that, if not surpassed it, this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, David Brooks. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, thank you so much for squeezing in. I'm happy to have contributed to the sex life of the Twin Cities <laughs> this way. Never seen so many tightly packed Minnesotans. It looks like a Michelle Bachman pep rally. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's, to the radio audience, it sounded like booze. They was really run, Michelle, run. Uh, I'd like to thank the Klezmer band who proceeded. Uh, uh, and you did a great job, and also at my bar mitzvah, too. Now, when I uh, started my book tour, when I was asked what, where I wanted to go on my book tour by my publisher, uh, this was the first place I mentioned, uh, because... It is nothing with you guys. I just like, like being up here at a pulpit. <laughs> uh, uh, in part because uh, my person, I probably told this story, but it's a little odd for me to be here and looking at these beautiful places. Uh, I grew up in a Jewish home. I'm Jewish. Uh, my great grandfather was a kosher chicken butcher, and then it was pretty much a hundred years of, of march towards secularization. And by the time I came along, I went to Grace Church School in, in Manhattan. Uh, I was actually part of the all-Jewish boys davening choir at Grace. Uh, and we would sing the hymns, but to square it with our religion, about a quarter of us were Jewish. Uh, we wouldn't sing the word Jesus. And so the volume would drop, and then it would pick up again. Uh, and then I married a woman from Minnesota, from Detroit Lakes, who, whose family lives here in the Twin Cities. Uh, yeah, 
it was the last time I ever got my way about anything. Uh, but uh, but she, three years after we were married, she announced she wanted to convert. Uh, and then uh, a few years after that, she said she wanted to study for the, to become a rabbi. Then she said she wanted to keep a kosher home, which we do. Then she said we, she wanted to send all our kids to Jewish day schools, which we do. And so my line is, this is how we know God must exist, because only he would go so far out of his way to screw me this badly. So if my wife could see me up here, she would get a kick out of it. Um, uh, and finally, it's a pleasure. Walter Mondale couldn't be here for obvious reasons, but he's uh, one of my true heroes. Uh, and one of the... Uh, and so I just wanted to pay tribute to him, especially since I'm about to insult the members of his profession. Uh, I started really this book, I, when I took my current job, I, I was told to, I was given a good piece of advice, which is to interview three politicians every day. And so I try to do that, and if you spend uh, as much time uh, as I do around politicians, you learn that almost all of them, with the exception of Mr. Mondale, are emotional freaks of one sort or another. Uh, they have what I call Lageria Dementia, which is they talk so much they drive themselves insane. Uh, but what they do have is incredible social skills. So when you stand uh, next to them, they'll walk right up to you, they'll rub, they'll invade your personal space, rub the back of your head, caress your cheek. I once uh, saw Ted Kennedy and Dan Quayle in the well of the Senate years and years ago, and I was up in the Senate press gallery, and they were friends, and they gave each other a big hug, and they stayed hugging, and their faces were like six inches apart, and they were laughing, and their arms were going up and down each other's backs, and they were sort of swaying and grinding away in there, and I was like, uh, get a room, I don't want to see this. Um, um, the story I tell about uh, Bill Clinton, who of course has tremendous social skills, uh, <laughs> it's a laugh line all by itself. Uh, but he, uh, I was in a Boston hotel lobby. He comes out of the elevator and he sees me and he starts praising me for a column I had written praising him, which he thought was very astute. Uh, and then, but as a crowd gathers, because they see Bill Clinton, he keeps talking to me, but he backs up. So within a few minutes, he's like 80 feet away from me, just embracing all the people who've gathered around. And so people, they have these incredible skills. Mitt Romney, I covered him in the presidential campaign last time. And one day he was up in New Hampshire campaigning with his five perfect sons, Bip, Chip, Rip, Sip, Diplin, Kip. Uh, and, and so he goes into a, a diner in New Hampshire and he goes up to each family at each table in the diner. Uh, and he introduced himself, asked him what village in New Hampshire they're from. And then he describes the ho home he owns in their village. And so he's going, uh, sort of going around the diner, and then on the way out, he first names almost everybody he's just met. So I thought, okay, that's impressive. Uh, and that the odd thing is these people who have incredible social skills, often when it comes to making policy, that awareness of human nature and, and what other people are thinking and feeling, a lot of it vanishes. And they gather, they govern in a sort of dehumanized way. And so I covered the decline and fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of Russia, and we sent over economists with privatization plans as if they're really the only problems there were economic. But the real thing Russia lacked was social trust. And everybody stole everything because there was no trust, and we were sort of oblivious to that. 
And then the, I covered uh, the Iraq war, obviously. Our leaders sent our military into Iraq, but we were oblivious to the cultural and psychological realities that we would find in Iraq. We had a financial regulatory system based on the supposition that bankers are prudent, rational, self-interested creatures <laughs> who would never do anything stupid en masse. Uh, that turned out to be wrong. Uh, and the subject I care most about is school reform and education reform. And I've covered education since the Nation at Risk Report and then about 30 years ago. And I've seen a series of reform efforts yield disappointing results. And that's usually because they were about rearranging the bureaucratic boxes, big schools, small schools, charters, vouchers, and they skirted the core issue, which is the individual relationship between a teacher and a student. Uh, and, and so, and so people learn from people they love, but if you mention the word love at a congressional hearing, they look at you like you're Oprah. Uh, and so the question was, why do the most socially attuned people on earth govern in a way that is so illiterate about human nature? And so I concluded that this is not strictly a political problem, it's a wider problem with the culture. That for centuries we've inherited a view of human nature that we're divided selves. That reason is separate from the emotion and that we progress to the extent that reason can conquer the passions. And this has created a view of human nature that we're rational individuals who respond in straightforward ways to incentives. It's created academic disciplines who, filled with people who try to study human behavior using the methodologies of physics, emph emphasizing the things they can count and measure and put into a computer model and sort of amputating all the rest. And I think this amputation has led to sort of broad cultural effects. We're really good at talking about material things, not so great at talking about emotions. We're really good at talking about skills and safety, but when we talk to our kids about the most important thing, which is character and morality, often we don't have much to say. And so this has uh, led to this change in our culture. Uh, and you can see this amputation in all sorts of spheres in life in the way we raise our kids. You go out to a neighborhood around here and you go to an elementary school when the kids are coming out, the third graders are coming out of elementary school, three in the afternoon, they're wearing their 80-pound backpacks because we stuff them with books. And if the wind blows them over, they're like beetles sort of stuck there on the ground. <laughs> and they get picked up in certain neighborhoods, especially in the Twin Cities area, uh, by, you'll see sort of luxury cars like Audis and Saabs and Volvos pull up because in some neighborhoods it's socially acceptable, acceptable to have a luxury car so long as it comes from a country hostile to U.S. foreign policy. That's, um, and then they get picked up by a creature I described in one of my books called Uber Moms who are highly successful career women who've taken time off to make sure all their kids get into Harvard and you can actually tell the Uber Moms because they weigh less than their children. Uh, so sort of at, 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 <laughs> at the sort of at the uh, moment of conception, they're doing little butt exercises to stay fit and trim. They're taking so many soy-based nutritional formula during pregnancy that when the babies come out, there's these 13-pound behemoths, these toothless defensive linemen plopping out there, and the uber moms are cutting the umbilical cord themselves, adjusting the, the video lighting and flashing Mandarin flashcards at the little things to get them ready. Uh, and and so this leads to the sort of the tiger momization of American parenthood, which a lot of us ridicule but few renounce uh, because we sort of are caught up in this thing at, which emphasizes grades and SAT scores and tests and what college you go to. 
And then when we try to think about morality, often we find ourselves sort of inarticulate about what a moral system is. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre said, we live in a world where we have the words for moral concepts, like honor, courage, virtue, but we don't have the underlying system so to know how it all fits together. And so when we try to behave morally, often it just turns into shopping. And so we, we shop in ways that make us feel sort of morally uplifted. So we shop at Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream company with its own foreign policy. Uh, I joke in one of my book that Ben and Jerry's should make a pacifist toothpaste, doesn't kill germs, just ask them to leave. Be a big seller. Um, or we go to the sort of morally uplifting grocery stores like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's where all the cashiers look like they're on loan from Amnesty International. Uh, what we buy in that, that, those foods, we, they don't sell, sell vulgar uh, snacks, they sell sort of morally uplifting ones made out of seaweed. Uh, the ones we buy in my house, it's called veggie booty with kale, which for, are for kids who come home and say, Mom, Mom, I want a snack that'll help prevent colon rectal cancer. Uh, and so, uh, and so this is the policy world, the child-rearing world, the broader culture that maybe isn't paying enough attention to the deeper things in human nature. And it, while I was sort of mulling this over, I came several years ago across a field that actually did pay attention to this deeper realm of human nature. And it was in the field, of the fast-moving fields of people who study the mind people in neuroscience, cognitive science, psychology, sociology, behavioral economics, about four other fields. And though they spoke in the language of science, often what they talked about was emotion and humanism. And I think they give us a humanistic view of human nature. And their work really has three key insights. The first insight is that the first, while the conscious mind writes the autobiography of our species, the unconscious mind is doing most of the work. So the human mind can take in 12 million pieces of information a minute, of which it can be consciously aware of about 40. And most of the thinking is unconscious. And so it leads us in, to behave in all sorts of ways that are peculiar. If you go out to dinner alone, you'll eat this much. If you go out with one other person, you'll eat on average 35% more. If you go out with three or more other people, you'll eat on average 78% more. And you're sort of not aware of this, but these are the things you're being led to. And often some of the unconscious thinking is quite smart. What the unconscious is, it's a different way of seeing the world. You have a rational, linguistic, and linear way of seeing the world. You have a different unconscious way of seeing the world, yielding its own decisions. So one, of the, one thing I learned is if you're having trouble making up your mind about two things, tell yourself you'll settle the issue with a coin flip. But then don't go by whether the coin comes up heads or tails. Go by your emotional reaction to the coin flip. Are you happy or sad it came up heads or tails? And that's a way for your inner mind is telling you what you already think. And so that's one thing, the power of the unconscious. The second foundational idea is that emotions are not separate from reason. Emotions are at the foundation of reason. There are scientists who study people who've had lesions who can't experience emotion. And those people are not super smart Mr. Spocks. They're super dumb. They make incredibly self-destructive decisions. Because what emotion does, it assigns values to things. Your emotions tells you what you admire, what you, what you have contempt for, what you like, and what you don't like. And if you don't have a valuation mechanism, you can't make rational decisions. Reason is built on emotion. Now, I'm a middle-aged American guy. I'm not particularly comfortable talking about emotion. 
My wife says that me writing a book about emotion is like Gandhi writing about gluttony. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> there, there's a, a, a brain scan story, which is apocryphal, but I still like it. Uh, they took a bunch of middle-aged guys, put them in brain scan machines, and then had them uh, watch a horror movie, and then they asked them to describe their feelings toward their wives. And the brains were identical in both activities, so it's just <laughs> sheer terror in both cases. Um, and yet even us uh, repressed middle-aged guys and even a repressed state like Minnesota uh, has, to, <laughs> has to pay attention to emotion because it, it tells us what we want, it also tells us what to remember, and it literally wires the mind. There was orphanages uh, in the 1940s where they decided the way to keep kids safe was to keep them germ-free. So they fed them, they gave them medical care, but they did not handle them, the babies. And by age two, these babies had a 37% mortality rate. They uh, stopped naming them because they were dying at such high rates. And so it is literally the love that, that wires the mind. The third insight is that we're not primarily self-contained individuals. We're social animals that are deeply interpenetrated one with another. When we look at each other, we don't only observe each other, we recreate in our own brains what we see others doing. So when you see me picking up a glass of water, in your brains, it looks as if you yourself are picking up a glass of water. And if you see me pick it up to drink, you encode it one way. If you see me pick it up to put it in a dishwasher, you encode it a different way. So when you see me doing it, you're not only mimicking my action, you're mimicking the intention behind my action. It's a deep interpenetration. And so these deep loops that flow through us all the time, at all times, come through, some through vision, some through things we're not even or barely aware of. So most of us would rather lose a sense of smell than a sense of vision, because vision seems so central for most of us. In fact, people who lose the sense of vision suffer much greater emotional deterioration, because so many of our sense, I mean, sense of smell, so many of our signals come through that sense of smell. One study conducted in Germany, they took gauze pads, put it under people's arms, and they had them, uh, some watch a horror movie, some watch a comedy. Then they had other research subjects who were presumably well-paid sniff the gauze pads. <laughs> and they said, did this person watch a comedy or a horror movie? And people could tell it way above average who which movie they watched simply by sniffing. Men were a lot better, or women were a lot better at this than men, not surprisingly. Um, so we're heirs to the French Enlightenment. We're heirs to people like Rene Descartes who thought that reason was the primary faculty and was really the center of who we are. But at the same time, there was a different enlightenment, a Scottish or British enlightenment, led by David Hume and Edmund Burke and Adam Smith, who said reason is weak, but what they called the sentiments are strong. And that we should trust our sentiments more than the people who believed in reason only did. And so I think what the science shows is that both are important, both reason and emotion. But the, the Scottish enlightenment was prob probably had a more accurate view of who we are. And when you go back to this view, you get a different view of policy, you get a different view of child rearing, you get a different view of human capital. When we think of human capital, the thing that really develops us, what, you think of, what we typically think about is grades, years in schools, degrees, professional skills as the key things that lead to sort of getting ahead in life. But when you look at this research, you become clued into a whole series of different traits traits that are hard to measure on a test, 
but are actually much more important to leading a fulfilling life. And so I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about some of these traits, which are half conscious, half unconscious, half emotional, half rational. One of the traits is mindsight, the ability to enter into other people's minds and sort of learn what they have to offer. And so babies are born with this facility. In 1979, a scientist named Alan Meltzoff leaned over a baby who was 43 minutes old, and he wagged his tongue at this baby. And at 43 minutes, the baby wagged her tongue back. And that's because even though the baby didn't know what a face was, didn't know what eye is or anything, but we're, we are connected to, we were born ready to mimic each other because that's how we learn. Babies have phenomenal abilities to read faces. You take six months old babies, put them in a room with pictures of eight different monkeys, they can distinguish one monkey from another because they're really good at reading faces. As adults, we lose that ability to distinguish monkey faces. Now, in, in, it might be helpful, I don't know. <laughs> In, uh, in this country, 55% of the babies at about 18 months have established two-way communications conversations with mom or with the, whoever their caregiver is. And those babies not only know how to build a relationship with mom, they have a model in their head for how to build a relationship, period, with anybody they meet. And so when they go to school, they know how to build a relationship with teachers. And scientists can take a look at these, what they call these attachment patterns and they can predict with 77% accuracy at 18 months who's going to graduate from high school. And that work was done right here, by the way, University of Minnesota. Uh, and, uh, and so many of these, these things are tremendously powerful. About 20% of the kids are what they call avoidantly attached. And so they send signals to mom, but nothing comes back. And in the book uh, that was actually written here, one of the teachers describes the kids who is avoidantly attached and it, the teacher describes the kid as like a sailboat tacking into the wind, wanting to get close to teacher but not knowing how to do it. And so those kids who are avoidantly attached have less activation in the reward areas of their brains during social interaction. They get less of a kick out of uh, friendship. And then at age 70, they're likely to have many fewer friends. Now, nothing happens at 18 months locks anybody into a life. There are later experiences that can countermand it or not but they open up pathways, which can either be confirmed or deconfirmed. And some people have this ability to enter into other minds and to learn in a deep way what other people have to tell them. The second trait you might call equipoise. And equipoise is do you have the serenity and maturity to monitor the biases in your own mind and correct for things that are going on deep inside yourself? So for example, we're overconfidence machines. 96% of college professors believe they have above average teaching skills. Uh, Time Magazine asked Americans, are you in the top 1% of earners? And 19% of Americans are in the top 1% of earners. <laughs> Two researchers, Paul Schumacher and Edward Rousseau, gave tests to executives and asked them about their own industry. And then they asked them, how confident are you you got the answers right? And in the advertising industry, the executives there thought, I got 90% of the answers right. In fact, they got 60% of the answers wrong. People in the computer industry, the most overconfident industry, thought they got 95% right. In fact, they got 80% wrong. Uh, this is a strongly gender-linked trait, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, men drown at twice the rate as women uh, because men have tremendous confidence in their swimming ability, uh, uh, especially after they've been drinking. Uh, 
but some people develop an awareness of this inner weakness. They are open-minded in the face of ambiguity. They adjust the strength of their conclusion to the strength of the evidence. They try to compensate for overconfidence by building modesty bootstraps. Peter Drucker suggested one. He said, when you make a decision, write it down, seal it in an envelope for nine months, and then open it up. And you'll learn that a third of your decisions were right, a third were wrong, a third were in the middle, but in almost all cases, your reasoning will be completely irrelevant. And so if you do that, you develop this equipoise, this ability to check and monitor your own mind. The third trait is metis, a Greek word, which we would call street smarts, the ability to read a situation and detect the patterns in the situation. My newspaper did a great story about soldiers in Iraq and Baghdad a couple of years ago. They could look down the street and they could detect whether there was an IED in the street, a landmine in the street. And when you ask them how they did it, they couldn't tell you, but they said, I feel a coldness inside. And so people who have this facility can have intuitive awareness to detect patterns. And it doesn't come naturally. It comes from hard work and close observation. The, fifth, the fourth trait I'll mention, just two quick ones, sympathy. The ability to look into other people and read signals and to respond and attune to the people around you. This come in, comes in handy at work because most of us work in groups. Groups are smarter than individuals and groups that meet face to face are much smarter than groups that meet any other way. At the University of Michigan, they did a study where they took, they gave people, groups of people math tests. Some of the groups, they gave 10 minutes to do the math tests, but they met face to face and they could solve the problems easily. Other groups, they gave 30 minutes, but they said you have to communicate by email and they couldn't solve the problems because so much of our communication is by intonation, by voice, by gesture, and even on a math problem, it's just tremendously important. And the quality of the group, the performance of the groups that worked was not determined by the IQ of the individual members. It was determined by how well they read each other's emotions, how often they took turns while talking. And so this is a skill that's hard to measure, but tremendously important for how one does in life. The fifth trait I'll mention is propriety. The ability to surround your life or scaffold your life with certain habits and etiquettes which encourage character and self-control. The most famous experiment in this whole field, which was done by a guy named Walter Michel, which probably many of you know this experiment, uh, was called the marshmallow experiment. And just quickly, for those of you who don't know it, Michel took four-year-olds, put them in a room, put a marshmallow on the table in front of them, and told them, you can eat this marshmallow now, but I'll come back in 10 minutes. And if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. And so he shows me videos of the kids trying not to eat the marshmallows. One little girl is banging her head on the table, trying not to eat the marshmallow. One day, Michelle was using an Oreo cookie. A little guy carefully opens up, picks up the Oreo, carefully opens it up, eats out the middle, and carefully puts it back. Uh, that kid is now a U.S. senator. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but 20 years later, uh, some kids, the kids who could wait 8, 10, 12 minutes had much higher college completion rates. Uh, the kids who could only wait one minute or pop their right in their mouth, much, much higher drug and alcohol addiction problems. And that's because some kids grow up in homes where actions lead to consequences and they develop strategies to control their impulses. And basically what they do is they distract themselves from the marshmallow. They sing a song, they hide, they do something like that. And so we do not have the power to control our own brain. There's too much going on down there, which is why New Year's resolutions fail. But we do have the power to scaffold our lives with habits, 
with etiquette, with small behavior, which really lay down grooves in our minds and encourage certain restrictions we put on ourselves. And when the big temptations come, we have more resources to steer away from them. And then the final thing I'll mention is a word I sort of borrowed called limerence. And this is not really a trait, it's a motivation. It's a drive or an ambition. What the conscious mind wants is for us to achieve the things the magazines talk about, money, success, good looks, fame, all that stuff. But what the unconscious mind wants are those moments when self-awareness fades away and we feel ourselves lost in something larger than ourselves. What a craftsman feels when lost in a craft, what an athlete feels lost in a sport, what a naturalist feels when at one with nature, what a believer feels when lost in God's love, and what we feel one to another when we fall in love with someone else. Now the decision to fall in love is like all the other decisions I've described. It's half conscious, half unconscious, half rational, half emotional. And so when we fall in love, we, there's a certain logic to it. We tend to marry people with nose widths similar to our own. We marry people with similar eyes similarly far apart. We tend to marry people with as much status as we can get. And for women, unfortunately, they tend to like men, men taller than themselves. Um, though I did see a, an online, a study of online dating which found that a guy who's five foot six can get as many online date offers as a guy who's six foot so long as he makes $172,000 a year more. Um, And so there is, even at the unconscious level, a certain logic to our choices, but there's also, of course, an enchantment to it. The French writer Stendhal had a great phrase, uh, crystallization. He described salt miners in Austria who would uh, throw branches into a mine, and then they would pick them up weeks later, and the branches would be covered with crystals, and they would shimmer beautifully in the sunlight. And he said, that's what we do to our beloved. We perceive them differently, so they're coated in shimmering crystals and more lovely than they really are, but our perceptions change when they're in the, in the act of love. And so that's one of the enchanted parts of what's happening inside. And one of the passages I came across that really encapsulated a lot of what I've been talking about, the power of emotion, the power of the unconscious, and the deep interpenetration of one person to another, was in a book written by a great scientist named Douglas Hofstetter. Hofstetter wrote many great books, but one of them is called I Am a Strange Loop. And he describes his family in this book. It's a little more personal. He was married to a woman named Carol, and they were on sabbatical uh, when their kids were five and two. And shockingly, Carol died very suddenly of, of a stroke. And he, months later, Hofstetter had a picture of Carol on the bureau, bureau of his bedroom. And he would walk through it many times a day and see the picture. But one particular day, he just looked at Carol's face uh, in an especially powerful way, though it was unplanned. And here's what Hofstetter wrote about that moment. I looked at her face, and I looked so deeply that I felt I was behind her eyes. And all at once I found myself saying, as tears flowed, that's me, that's me. And those simple words brought back many thoughts that I had had before, about the fusion of our souls into one higher level entity about the fact that the core of both our souls lay our identical hopes and dreams for our children, about the notion that those hopes were not separate or distinct hopes, but were just one hope, one clear thing that defined us both, that welded us into a unit, the kind of unit I had but dimly imagined before being married and having children. 
I realized that though Carol had died, that core piece of her had not died at all, but that it had lived on very determinedly in my brain. And so the Greeks used to say, we suffer our way to wisdom. And the wisdom Hofstetter suffered his way to was that the loops in our brain are shared loops. And they leap one to another between lovers, between teachers, between cultures, and straight back to the, our ancestors thousands of thousands of years ago. And none of us live separately from the, the incredible panoply of loops. And I think in a, less, in a shallower and less important way, what we've learned from the policy failures of the past couple decades is that any set of policies based on an amputated view of human nature will be insufficient. Any way of raising our kids based on a shallow view of human nature will be insufficient. Any culture that really is not articulate about who we are deep down will be insufficient. And the good news is we're living in this moment where researchers in all these spheres, fields are giving us a deeper view of who we are, a more precise view of how things are working. And when Freud had his version of the unconscious, it had a pervasive cultural influence for decades. Now I think we're getting a better and more accurate view of the unconscious, and I think it's going to have a wonderful effect on our culture for decades to come. Thank you very much. Thank you, David Brooks. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author and New York Times columnist David Brooks. While the ushers collect questions from our in-house audience, I'd like to invite the radio audience to visit us online at westminsterforum.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We welcome your comments and participation through our social media sites. We invite you to join us for our next forum on Thursday, April 14th, two weeks from now at noon, when theologian and Bible scholar Marcus Borg will be our guest speaker. And now, Mr. Brooks, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. To what extent is your book autobiographical? <laughs> uh, a lot of friends ask me, are you just having a midlife crisis? Uh, just get a Corvette. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't, uh, don't think it is. I, I really was dragged into, believe me, I never thought I'd be writing about emotion and psychology. But I, it, it actually started, I was covering why, why does 20 or 30% of American kids drop out of high school? And when you do that, you really get into the first three years of life very quickly. I came across a, a Nobel Prize winning economist named Jim Heckman, who talked about uh, the importance of those early years, and especially what he called non-cognitive skills, meaning non-IQ. And so my question was, what's a non-cognitive skill? And once I got into the field of the brain research, it, it took me to, to this realm. So I don't think it's cause of a midlife crisis. Uh, and the, the book is really, a, and I have two characters in the book, they really follow the research more than my own sad and pathetic uh, emotional problems, which you don't need to know. 
How do you suggest that we help CEOs and politicians understand more about the role of emotions in organizations and in the body politic? You know, I will say, first cry in front of them a lot. Uh, <laughs> give them a hug, kiss, nibble their ear. Um, not the politicians, let's not take this too far. Uh, you know, I, I will say, and I've, I've spoken to most members of, of Congress about um, a lot of these issues and about uh, early childhood education in particular, which I think is so important. And I will say there's often an, a patronizing nod, oh yes, that's very important, and then they want to get on to the serious stuff, which has to do with guns and banks. Uh, and that is, that is, a, that is a, a bias we have. Right now we're in a budget-cutting season, and a lot of the things that are getting cut are the things that seem soft and squishy, like art and music. But one of the themes of the book is that the things that seem soft and squishy are actually hard and practical. Uh, and... Um, yeah. You know, I ran, I ran into an educator in uh, California who said, you know, to keep my kids in school, we have to emphasize the ABCs, athletic, band, and cheerleading. Uh, and so that has to be just countered all the time. It's just a bigger cultural bias. All right, Mr. Brooks, speaking of social animal, do you and Mark Shields go out for beers after PBS <laughs> <laughs> on Friday evenings? Uh, we after do in, enjoy out. our time together. I, I tell everybody, we, we tried to get our segment right now, it's called Shields and Brooks, uh, and we wanted to get it called Brooks Shields, uh, because we build, but they didn't go for that. Um, my other joke is that Mark's been doing this segment quite a long time. It's, it's now called uh, Shields and Brooks. Before that, it was Shields and Gigot, and before that, it was Shields and Gergen, and then before that, it was Shields and Coolidge. Uh, and it's, it's um, but the, the short answer is, um, I think we enjoy each other's company tremendously. Mark is just what he seems, um, a very funny, very loyal, uh, very good Irish Catholic kid, and I'm a New York Jew, so maybe there's something simpatico there. And so the fact, the bottom line is, and with Lara, we, we just get along very well. One of our listeners asks, would you say that your book presents a more feminine perspective on life? Uh, I would say that, actually. <laughs> you know, a lot of uh, what I write and what really the scientists are finding uh, are things that, you know, uh, a lot of women come up to me and say, well, duh. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so, uh, sorry, we're late. But, uh, but at least now we have really expensive equipment to vindicate these opinions. Uh, I will say, by the way, just in terms of romantic advice, since not all, even women don't always make the soundest choices, uh, one of the bits of research I came across said, if you want to, if you're dating someone or serious about another person, sneak up behind them and startle them. Because the startle response is a very good indicator of the underlying temperament of the person. And so if they react with anger, then that's cause for warning. If they laugh it off, that's probably a good sign. So, <laughs> little dating advice from David Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> Where do ethics fit between emotion and reason? Yeah, well, there is a chapter in the book on how we arrive at our moral sentiments, I would call them. And this, too, goes back to the Scottish Enlightenment and to Hume. There is a view, a Kantian view, that we, we have our morals and we've come at our ethical principles 
primarily by reason. We think through our principles and come at moral rules. But there's a fair bit of research now, and I think vindicated by science, but also by other, by thinkers. And by the way, what the scientists are discovered, they rarely give us new philosophies. They more or less just reinforce philosophies that came before. And so David Hume or, or Adam Smith, who wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, they emphasized moral thinking is not about reason primarily and coming to abstract principles. It's about reactions. And so when we see incest, we have an automatic reaction. If we see unfairness, we have an immediate reaction. No one needs to teach a two-year-old about unfairness. They know about unfairness. No one needs to teach people about impurity. And so we have these moral sentiments that we then refine or improve or overrule using reason. So reason is important, but we're really building off things that are deep inside. And I should mention quickly in my talk, I emphasize a lot of the really good things that are unconscious, but there are also destructive and maladaptive things there. Uh, for example, we're really quick to divide between in-group and out-group. And that leads to a lot of tribalism, a lot of racism, a lot of genocide. And so there are parts of the unconscious that are less attractive than the ones I've spoken about. In light of what you've learned in writing your book, what is the most important piece of advice you give to new parents? Well, the pressure on new parents is off. All you have to do is listen to your kids. Uh, there's a scientist named Eric Turkheimer who emphasizes that parenting, once you attune to kids, once they know how to form a relationship that's two-way, that's, that's enough. All the flashcards, all the Mozart for babies' minds, that's all extraneous. And so it's only important to have that relationship with the kid and listen and sort of adapt. When the kid is overwrought, bring him down. When the kid is down, bring him up. Uh, and that's all, that that's all that matters. It's, it takes a lot of pressure off parents, uh, actually. It puts more pressure on keeping the marriage intact, actually. Uh, the average baby demands a mom's attention every 20 seconds in the first year of life. The average mom loses 700 hours of sleep in that first year. Marital satisfaction declines by uh, 70%. And so that's the test. Uh, we've all been through there. Many of us have been through this. Uh, and so the test is to keep that marriage happy because marriage is the single most important factor. There are many factors that lead to personal happiness, but marriage is the most important one. I tell college kids every course they take should be a preparation for the marriage decision. Uh, and, and they don't listen to me. But, uh, but if you want to be happy, first have a lot of friends. Uh, joining a club that meets once a month produces the same happiness boost as doubling your income. Uh, and uh, marrying someone that successful marriage produces the same happiness boost as $100,000 a year of income. So that's just the most important decision to nurture the marriage while you're looking after the kid. How does commercial uh, advertising and uh, our political propaganda affect the unconscious? Uh, that's a good question, not one um, I really saw studies on. I will say just my own observations, which is that I'm always suspicious, even for someone who's in the media, I'm a little suspicious of drawing too strict a line between media influence and actual behavior. We learn from the people around us. So for example, I was at a diner in Queens a couple of years ago, and I was sitting next to a table of four ladies from the, this neighborhood in Queens, and they had, they had these thick Queens accents, and they had these bouffant hairdos and thick, richly painted nails. And I was thinking, I'm probably right now about two miles from the headquarters of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 
There is nobody on any of these media outlets who dresses this way or who talks this way, except maybe Fran Drescher, I guess. Uh, but, uh, and yet here they are with their accents and their styles. And that's because we learn from people we're around, not necessarily from the media. I was at a conference of sexologists many years ago, a more, more boring group of people you never want to meet, by the way. Uh, and I learned that while media treatment of sex changed a lot in the 60s, actual sexual behavior did not change all that much. It changed, but not all that much. What really changed sexual behavior was World War I and World War II. It was the physical disruption of life. It was going to Paris. Uh, that changed things, not the media. So I'm always skeptical of drawing neat distinctions or neat links between media and actual behavior. A favorite quote of Mr. Rogers came from Little Prince. What's essential in life is invisible to the eye. Do you agree? Uh, yes. I mean, one of the themes of all this research is to pay less attention to individuals and more attention to the quality of relationships between individuals. Uh, and, and we don't do that particularly well in government, by the way, in the form nurturing institutions. And one of the things this has changed my mind about, I wrote the book more or less celebrating the fast-growing suburbs, but one of the things you learn is the power of density, the power of face-to-face. -face. Uh, one of the studies I came across, they took a look at patent applications. And when people draw patent applications, they list all the other patents that help them make their creation. And an amazing number of all those other patents were uh, invented by people who live within 25 miles of the inventor. We tend to be heavily influenced by people right around us. And so living in a city actually is pretty good for your productivity. Can the kind of research you're reading and about which uh, you use in, in your book, write about in your book, can that research help us figure out or know what to do about the polarized, degraded state of our current public discourse? Uh, yes, it talks about emergent systems about how a pattern of interaction can really change behavior. And so we all say live in cultures. None of us embody perfectly American culture, but American culture emerges from the pattern of interaction of all, our, all of our lives. And once that culture is set above us, we're influenced by it. And so what polarization is, it has a zillion different things that cause it. Uh, it has, it's caused in part because the media is the way it is, the fundraising base the way it is, redistricting is the way it is, the primaries are the way it is, because Congress people fly home, because people move in with people like themselves. I could go through a list of 20 different causes. And all these things feed these complex systems, these interactions, and all of them create a, a tribal mentality. And th then the tribes become split, and they see each other not in the other tribe as human beings, but as some abstraction who they don't trust and don't know. And so when I look at polarization, I don't think there's a single legislative fix to it. You, when you have a problem with a culture, you have to try to change everything at once. You have to try everything you know to change that, which is why it's so hard for us to get out of the polarization, even though many of the politicians I speak to would love to get out of it. Uh, but they're trapped in a pattern of interaction. Uh, and uh, it takes a lot of, it's going to take a lot to get us out of it. Here's a question from a high school student. What do you have to say to a senior high, a senior high school student planning to study political science, but has a dismal view of the future of our political system? <laughs> <laughs> so jaded and wise, so young. Uh, <laughs> 
I agree with you. I, I got an email from a friend of mine who worked in the Clinton administration and then went off to do school work at schools in New York who said, I've never been so optimistic as I am about education right now, but I've never been so pessimistic about government. And that's about what I think. Uh, I, I was mentioning to some folks earlier at dinner that two very fine individuals who are in Washington are Barack Obama and the Paul Ryan, who's the Republican budget chairman of the House Budget Committee. And they would, they're wonderful to talk to each of them. They know a lot about government and the really public-spirited uh, politicians. And you'd think they get, could get together and they'd love to have a conversation together, but they've never actually had a conversation. Uh, and there are only like six people who are really running the budget. You'd think they'd talk to each other. Uh, and that's a sign of how symptomatic the program, or the pro how, how diseased our politics is, uh, that they can't just get together. And so the downside, the upside for the high school student is there's a lot you can do. Uh, and that th this situation will not last forever. We will have a crisis of one sort or another, and we will fix it. And then the final thing I'll, I'll say is, even in the, the disease system we have, the people who serve in government generally remember those years as some of the best and the most important years of their lives. And so I ask them many things about what they've learned in government that they didn't know before. And one of them said, each individual day was bad, but the total experience was wonderful. <laughs> and that's because those decisions really can be quite consequential. Is campaign finance reform critical to our democracy? What's necessary for it to occur? Do you think it will actually happen? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure it's that critical anymore. As I said, there are a zillion different factors leading to polarization, leading to the power of special interest. Campaign and finance is one of them. But uh, I'm not convinced it would make a huge difference. Part of the problem is that, and I have a minority view on this, I think most of the dollars that are spent on elections are completely wasted. Uh, you know, here you have a series of, you know, <laughs> um, you know I, I, I actually didn't get up here too much. I think I was up here once during the Coleman-Franken race. But I suspect that when you turned on the TV at the height of that race, you saw just a bunch of ads all at once. And so my view is once you've raised, say, in a Senate race, $7 million, then the next $7 million you're just making the rubble bounce. You're doing nothing. And so I'm not convinced that dollars have a huge effect once you cross that threshold on who wins. And there's a fair bit of political science that suggests that it's very, once candidates are evenly matched, or once they have a certain amount of money, there's a very low correlation between the candidate that outraises and the candidate who wins. In the last election, Democrats vastly outraised the Republicans. The Republicans did very well. In 2006, the Republicans vastly outraged the Democrats. The Democrats did very well. The, Republic the, can the politicians have tremendous faith in the power of money because they want to believe they control their own destinies, and they can control it by raising money. Uh, I just don't think that faith is unsupported by the evidence. So money has an effect because politicians have an, a lavish faith in it, and therefore they're willing to be nice to anybody they think will give them money, uh, but I'm not sure that faith is justified. Final question, Mr. Brooks. Are you optimistic about our nation's future as you witness the growing polarization in politics? I'm incredibly optimistic about the country, not so much about the political system. So let me start with the political system. I think we're gonna have, among other things, just a national bankruptcy 
sometime in the next eight or 10 years. Uh, I mentioned this group that in 2019, which is not so far away, the interest payments on the debt alone uh, will be $900 billion. It's just unsupportable. And so we're all going to have to take a hit. We're going to have to raise some taxes. We're going to have to cut some spending. And we're going to have to do it all together. And I don't think we're going to do that until we have a crisis uh, or after a crisis. Um, and, and then finally, but I'm optimistic about the country because the culture of the country is still basically the same. And so we are the only country on earth which is really still a crossroads for the world where people want to come from all over the world and meet and magnify their talents here. That is still what we've had since the 18 or since the 1600s and we still have that. And then if you want to feel really good about the country, look at people under 30. All the social indicators that went south in the 60s, 70s, and 80s are now heading in the right direction. Teenage pregnancy is down, uh, domestic violence is down, abortion rates are down, crime is down, teenage suicide is down. This is an incredibly wholesome and responsible generation. They're all going to have the biggest midlife crisis in human history in about 10 years. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> but, uh, and that finally they all have tremendous faith and I think Frankly, I think a lot of us in the boomer years had, uh, we were very individualistic. We had an individualistic revolution in the 60s, which was about social liberation. We had an economic liberation of the individual in the 80s, which was about economic individualism. But the generation under 30 and 35 is much more communitarian and emphasizes these social links I've been talking about. They do all this community service. One of the college presidents where I live at George Washington University says, I don't know where my kids find lepers, but they find them and they read to them. Um, so that's a sign of um, the real community involvement, which is rising, uh, the social awareness, which is rising, and which will ultimately be the salvation of the country. Thanks very much. Thank you, David Brooks.